<coughs> Hear the word of the Lord. And God said that there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the light. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. That is God's word. Let us ask him now to bless our study of it, that we might be made beneficiaries of its rich teaching. Let's pray. Lord, as we continue to move through this account of the way in which you created the world, we pray that you would continue to call us to faithfulness, help us to understand your word, and to appreciate the significance of what it is that you did so long ago. Uh, Lord, may we see in the world around us evidences of your power and glory. And may the beauties, splendor of your creation lead us to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when you go outside and you look up in the sky, what do you see? I guess it depends on when you look up, doesn't it? But typically, if you look up in the morning on a beautiful day like today when it's nothing but blue skies you see up there. You see the sun. You see the atmosphere around you lit up by the sun. And even on days when there are clouds in the sky, uh, the light of the sun still makes its presence known and we feel its effects. If you go outside and you look up at night, you'll see some sort of light out there in the darkness if it's not too cloudy. Whether it be from the moon in its various phases or from the stars. If you can get a far enough away from the lights... Uh, uh, the, the lights in the heavens appear that much brighter. And this is true day in and day out, so we take it for granted. Like, like clockwork, uh, we can expect that the sun will come up during the day and it will go back down at night. And, and the only time that we really stop and think about these things is when it inconveniences us. The sun's too bright. I need my sunglasses. How am I supposed to drive? Uh, in my own car, the little thing that covers the, the shade fell off, and so I'm looking at myself or the sun. I have to choose. Or maybe the sun's not bright enough. There's too many clouds in the sky. It's going to rain. Uh, it's a gloomy day. just don't like it. Or it got dark, so we've got to go back inside, leave off what you were doing, whether work or play, because the moon and the stars aren't bright enough to get the job done. That's really when we think about the sun and the moon. And beyond this, consideration of the sun, moon, and stars is left for scientists, amateur astronomers, uh, horoscope readers, uh, and sci-fi movies. That's, that's basically it. But it's important for us to recognize tonight that it's not always been this way. In a world before electric lighting, life was largely dictated by the natural ebb and flow of light in the sky. 
You simply could not ignore it. For the most part, you got up when the sun came up, you quit working when it started to go down, and when it got good and dark, you went to bed. That was life. And if that's your world, then I'd imagine you probably think about the sun and the moon a lot more than we do uh, in our modern world, when it doesn't really matter if it's dark. There's always a light to turn on. And yet even that observation uh, does, does not entirely explain the difference between our disposition towards these things and that of the ancients. Because for many who were living during the days in which the Bible was written, the sun, the moon, and the stars, they weren't just things up there in the sky which could be of help. They were divine. They were divine. For, for many who lived in the world of the Bible, the sun and moon weren't balls of fire and rock. They were themselves gods to be worshipped and served. They were some of the most powerful, large, massive, prevalent things uh, that were known. Uh, and so many pagans adopted notions that caused them to order their entire lives around the sun, the moon, and the stars. And what I want you to see tonight, it is against both of these errors. An unthinking assumption that the sun and moon have always been there, they'll always be there, and they don't mean a whole lot on the one hand. And a religious devotion to these objects as gods on the other. That the Bible speaks of the sun, moon, and stars as objects created to fill to fulfill the purpose of their creator. They are created objects intended to fulfill real purposes assigned to them by their creator. And so, with that in mind, I want now to turn to the first of three points tonight, which I want to consider. And, and, and the first point is the purpose of the lights. The purpose of the lights. After creating and shaping the earth over the first three days, such that it might be a fruitful habitation for creatures, that's what we saw last week, God, here in the text, creates the sun and the moon on day four. Why did He do that? Some sort of supernatural light had shone upon the earth since day one. Remember, let there be light. But now that arrangement will cease and be replaced by another one. Why? Well, the text provides us with three distinct purposes for the lights or luminaries, as they are sometimes called, placed in the expanse of the heavens on day four. So what are those three distinct purposes? Well, first, the sun and the moon were introduced to separate the day from the night. In one sense, day and night already existed because that supernatural light source uh, created on day one had been causing day and night sequences uh, on the rotating earth since day one. But God is now preparing the earth to move beyond the, the, all of the special uh, arrangements of the creation week towards arrangements which will subsist during ordinary providence. And so from day four onward, the sun and moon will be created objects used to, to, to mark the passing of these days and nights, distinguishing one 
from the other. Here's how verse 16 explains it. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night. You see, from the perspective of the earth dweller, we know now today that uh, the sun is not moving, as uh, some have thought. Uh, the earth is moving, but still it is true that from our perspective, the sun rises each morning and it sets each evening. When it sets, it's time for the moon to make its appearance. And we know that the sun and the moon continue to perform this function today. So the first thing that the sun and moon do is to separate the day from the night. The second purpose for these lights is to be, as the text tells us, for signs and for seasons and for days and years. We can sum up that entire phrase by saying that the sun and moon were introduced to mark time. To mark time. And I phrase that very carefully because this listed function of the sun and moon demonstrates the error, the error of those who insist that the creation of the sun marked the beginning of ordinary days. Such that the first three days could have been or maybe were long ages and it's only from day four onward when the sun and moon are created that we have ordinary solar days. But that would only make sense if the creation of the sun and the moon marked the creation of time. But we have insisted earlier in our study of this book that time was created on day one of the creation week. Before God's first acts in creation, uh, time did not exist. And afterwards, it did. And therefore, the, we can say that the creation of the sun and moon no more introduced time to the earth than a ha the hanging of a wall clock in this room would introduce time to the room. In both cases, uh, whether it's the hanging of the sun and the moon or the placement of the, uh, the, the clock on the wall, you have the introduction of a visible sign marking the invisible passing of time. So time was already passing. Days were already passing on days one, two, and three. But now the sun and the moon will have a particular function in marking uh, those days out. And with that distinction between the creation of time and the marking of time made, we ought to say more about the positive use of having the sun to mark out time. Because that had all sorts of positive values. Because the sun and moon fulfill this purpose, they have functionality in the everyday lives of God's created beings. One example is the fact that by these visible signs, human beings can track the seasons, both Natural seasons, and it's going to be clear that this is important later on in the Old Testament, liturgical seasons. For, for ancient Israel, it, it didn't matter that one could, it, it didn't just matter, I should say, that one could differentiate the winter from the spring, though of course that was valuable. But it also mattered that you knew when the various festivals and rites commanded by God were to be held. And as we will see, uh, in the future, these were often tied to those heavenly signs created on day four. How often do we hear things about this so many days after the new moon? Now, these things were important 
in the life of Israel, not just for natural, but for religious reasons. And the, the sun and moon are effective for these purposes because, because in part, as the text here tells us, they mark the ordinary progression of days, weeks, months, and years. I mean, we can get very practical. The reason that you're sitting here tonight uh, is because the sun rose seven times since you were here last. That's why you're here tonight. And God designed it that way long ago. So, the sun and moon separate the day from the night. They act as, uh, they, they exist to be signs, for signs and for seasons, for days and for years. And finally, they are there to give light upon the earth. With, with the removal of the supernatural light on day one, it's now going to be the job of the, the sun to give light upon the earth moving forward. And uh, this, may, this may be one of those things that it feels like, why does this even need to be said? But we must remember, God has just caused plant life to spring up out of the earth on day three. Uh, on the day that follows, you're going to have the introduction of, uh, of all sorts of additional life, on days five and day six. And, and without light, no life would long persist upon the earth. In this sense, God is still working to make this a habitable world, not just in the special conditions of the creation week, but for ages to come. And so consequently, God in His wisdom fixed light sources within the expanse of the heavens, which we talked about last week, so that those lights might provide the earth with the illumination which it needed in order to fulfill its purposes. And so when we... Take those three purposes, uh, that uh, the lights separate the day from the night, they exist to be signs, seasons, days, and years, and to give light upon the earth. We see these things very clearly fall out in the text. So, so if you look at the text, here's what happens in the account of day four. God reveals His intention to fulfill these, these three purposes with the creation of heavenly luminaries in verses 14 and 15. The act of creation is described in verse 16. Uh, God there said to make sun, moon, and stars. And we'll talk more about those in a moment. But then there is another threefold description of the purpose that these now completed works Fulfill in verses 17 to 18, followed by God's evaluation of them as good. And then finally, there is the evening and morning description of day 4 and verse 19. So one of the things I want you to see here is that the text twice repeats these three purposes for the creation of the lights. And one of the reasons I believe that this is so is because uh, the, the account of creation is, is placing emphasis on the importance of day 4 for various reasons, as we're going to see. And, and so, I think we get a better idea of why that's the case when we move from our first point, the purpose of the light, to point two, which is that we want to see that this text demonstrates the power of God. The power of God. So we move from the purposes of the lights to the power of God. And I admit, this is true of the whole creation week. How many times have we talked about God's demonstration of power already in our study 
of the creation week. And yet, I believe that there is a certain sense in which God's power is especially prevalent on day four. And we want to focus on two things which, in particular, communicate this. First of all, pay attention to the vocabulary used in the text. Notice what it says. Notice what it doesn't say. We have used tonight the words sun and moon repeatedly. They appear absolutely nowhere in the text. We read of two great lights. The greater light and lesser light. That's a peculiar way of speaking. Um, and it's not as if Moses was not familiar with the standard terminology. He uses the words for sun and moon all over the place in the first five books of the Bible. So what gives? Most theologians and interpreters agree that Moses uses this language in order to avoid any confusion about what role the sun and moon were to play in God's created order. The pagans, whether they be the Egyptians, the Sumerians, the Babylonians, you fill in the blank, the pagans assigned various forms of divinity to all of these heavenly bodies. However, in order to avoid any appearance of such foolishness, Moses here in the creation account won't even utter the names normally assigned to these lights. He's preemptively heading off what would later be condemned in more explicit terms in Deuteronomy 4 as we've already seen. So, so Moses here does not speak of the Shemesh, which is the Hebrew word for sun, lest Shemesh become a god. He specifically warns against the worship of the sun in that sense in Deuteronomy chapter 4. You see, he wanted to communicate right away that these things, despite what everybody around Israel said, these things were God's handiwork and God was the master craftsman. He is the powerful one. And while those objects do appear to possess great power, any appearance of power that they have is just reflective of their creator. So as far as our narrative is concerned, the sun and the moon are just the big light and the little light doing their jobs. They're just things. They're there to serve the Lord's interests. They are not gods. They are not divine. They are not to be worshipped and served. Yes, they play an important role, but they are servants, not lords. Servants, not lords. And so even the vocabulary of this text serves to downplay the significance of the sun and the moon. At least that's how people in the ancient Near East would have seen it. They would have seen this as a downgrade of the status of the sun and moon below what they were accustomed to. And yet, it also emphasizes the power and the initiative of God in creating them. So the, the language used here is a testimony to the fact that God is supreme and power belongs to Him. 
The second thing in this text that I think emphasizes the power of God, which I want, to, I want you to pay attention to, is, is to the sheer description of the creative act in verse 16. Listen to the extent of God's creation. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. That is an absolutely mind-blowing task, recounted in a very brief and to the point way. So, so not only did God create the sun and the moon on day four, He also created the stars, which is a point tacked on as if it were not all that noteworthy. But, but remember, the, the creation account is told in ordinary language, which anybody, even in a, in a pre-scientific world, to, to give some air quotes there, even in a pre-scientific world, could have understood. Uh, and, and so uh, the word star here uh, is probably being used in a broader sense than we would typically use it. Uh, we, we think of it as, you know, big flaming balls of gas uh, in, in the heavens. Uh, but for the, the Israelites, the stars, they were that word could be applied to any of those objects up there glittering in the sky. Uh, and, and so when we read of the creation of the stars here, we're really talking about the creation of stars, planets, and even galaxies. All the things out there in the great expanse of the heavens are being spoken of right here. And that, that, is, something, uh, that is something that's hard to even wrap our minds around because even if we just restrict ourselves to actual stars, as we understand them, the current estimate for how many stars there are in the universe, and don't ask me how they come to this number, I found it online, but from NASA, uh, is about one septillion. I don't even know what that means. I know that it's a one with 24 zeros after it, and that sounds like a lot to me. That's, that's a number that your brain cannot even conceptualize. Uh, I promise you cannot think of one septillion things. It's, it's impossible. And yet God did it. In a day, in a moment. Uh, the, the creation of all those stars, you know how many Hebrew words it takes to narrate it? Two. Two Hebrew words. It's three for us and the stars, but some of that gets mushed together. And so, we have here the creation of something magnificent. On day four, something far bigger than we can grasp or handle or understand. And it all shows the infinite and overwhelming power of God. That He could do something incomprehensible as if it were nothing. He did not break a sweat on day four. If, he, if, if on any day He was going to, it would probably be this one, and He didn't. It took Him no more effort and exertion than anything else that was done in the creation week. And this is here proof that God is truly omnipotent and almighty. He has complete mastery and dominion over every created thing. Even those things out at the edge of the universe which we do not know about and will not know about it. He knows what's inside those black holes. He knows what it looks like. This is why we, one of the reasons we confess in Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 2, paragraph 2, that God is the alone fountain of all being. Of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things, and hath most sovereign dominion over them, to do by them, for them, or upon them, whatsoever himself pleaseth. 
God can do whatever he wants from this end of the universe to the other. And so, what you see here that both the vocabulary in the text of Scripture and the events narrated in the text both testify to the supreme, infinite, immeasurable power of God. And so we ought to, I just think, just stand back humbly in awe and marvel at that. That's worthy of contemplation. That's worthy uh, to, to chew on. Think about mole over. You know, we, we clearly are not to worship and serve the sun and the moon. The story's told in such a way as to lead us away from that. But I think when we think about really what God did in creating them, the sun and the moon ought to move us to worship their creator. They ought to point us beyond themselves that we might worship the one who can make worlds like that. God is powerful. And so, we have seen now the purpose of the lights created on day four, the power of God displayed through the creation of those lights, and finally this evening we come, point three, which is the, preem the preeminence of the Lamb. The preeminence uh, of the Lamb. Now, you might wonder how this text could lead us to Christ. Uh, what does the creation of the sun and moon, particularly this terse account of the creation of the moon, have to do anything uh, with Jesus. But Christ's own words that the Old Testament uh, was about him ring true here as elsewhere. And, and this is clear, I think, I think it's clearest, when we consider the overarching sweep of history. So think through it with me now. During the first three days of world history, the sun did not exist. Light existed, but the great light described here in the text had not yet been formed, placed up in the expanse to bear light. And so on those first three days, light came from elsewhere. And as we have, I think, very plausibly suggested previously, this was a light with a supernatural source. It was, uh, uh, I, think, I think it's almost fair to say, uh, a picture of God's glory shining forth in the world that He had created. Shining upon the earth at God's decree. That's what took place in the first three days. And then, as we've just seen, that temporary arrangement was altered on day four with the creation of of the sun and the moon. Obviously, we know that this second way of providing illumination would go on to last much longer than the first. It persists right up to the present. And presumably, hope so, fingers crossed, it will continue on for some time to come. However, as we will see in weeks and months to come, Sin was quickly introduced into God's good creation through the sin of Adam and Eve. And so rather than entering into a state of permanent life and rest and peace upon completion of a successful test for probation, Adam and Eve lived and died in a fallen world. And time just kept on ticking. 
Therefore, the sun and the moon were required to continue performing their threefold function even as creation began to collectively groan under the weight of sin. And for what it's worth, that groan is evidenced by the science as well, which tells us that the sun cannot go on burning forever. It is a created thing. It is not infinite. And so those who have studied the matter, again, will have to take their word, currently conclude that if things stay the, thing, stay the same and time keeps on ticking, the sun will, would naturally burn up in another four or five billion years. So let's put all that together. There was a supernatural light source. And then there was a natural light source. But the natural light source cannot exist forever. So, what hope is there for the long-term future of the universe? Well, the Bible tells us that the hope for the future is the return of the supernatural light source. The history of everything comes full circle in the story of the Bible. We move from supernatural light to natural light back to supernatural light. Because the Bible tells us that beyond this world, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. An eschatological state to which Adam should have attained, but which he lost on account of his sin. And as Revelation describes it, the creation of, of that new world is in some ways a return to the garden, but in many ways it, it is a transcendence of what the garden ever could have been. It's not just a garden, it's a garden city. It's a, it's a, it's a new world where the Lord dwells in glory. And here, very instructively I believe, is how the Apostle John describes it in Revelation 21, 22-27. I'll read Here's what we read there. And I saw no temple in the city, for the, the, its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So observe that in the new heavens and the new earth, as they are described for us, the pages of the Bible, in that place... The sun and the moon disappear. They are gone. They've served their purpose. They can now step aside. And they are replaced by what? They are replaced by Jesus Christ Himself. Who is the Lamb seated on the throne functioning as a lamp. His divine glory radiates through the whole new creational realm, giving light to those who have placed their faith in Him. And that's reiterated again in Revelation 22.5, which states, 
that when the new heaven and the new earth are completed, night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. That is a place of glory. That is a place of delight. And that is the end of the story, which began on day four. So how do we get there? How do we experience the, the lamb lamp, if we can coin a term, which lights up paradise forevermore? How do we ensure ourselves that we have a hope that extends beyond the four to five billion years that our son has left? Well, Jesus himself told us, and so we ought to heed his teaching as it is recorded for us in John 8.12. Here's what he says. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So, you see, if you want the light of life, you must follow the one who is the light of the world, the one who will be the lamp. You, you must follow him by faith out of the darkness, out of the darkness, forsaking sin, forsaking the accompanying misery, and follow him by faith into the light of life. And so it is by looking to the one who died and rose again, thereby inaugurating a new creation, that we become people of the light, who walk in the light, who are destined to live in a land filled with light, fueled by the very glory of God. So brothers and sisters, I hope you see that when we consider the overarching story of the Bible, and may we even say the overarching story of history, that the fourth day of creation leads us directly to Jesus Christ. We don't even have to try hard. The direction is connect. It's a direct flight from one end to the other. Okay? Because Jesus Christ is the one who fulfills and perfects the work of those created luminaries introduced on the fourth day. No matter how majestic they might seem, our Lord is preeminent over them all. And as such, as often as we see the sun, the moon, and the sky, let us set our hearts and our minds on the Lord Jesus Christ, who will one day replace them both. And may He illumine our hearts to salvation, both in this life and in the life to come. Amen. Let's pray.